we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. The grass withers, the flowers fail, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's look to him, shall we, in prayer. Heavenly Father, these are your words. I cannot add to them. I cannot improve them. They are from you by your spirit. But I would ask this day that your spirit might enable me to explain in our cultural context and in our language that which you have said through your apostle. And point us to Jesus. Give us each one here hearts to receive and spirits that are ready to be changed, transformed to mirror our Savior in our relationships with one another. For I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know how many thousands of miles I have uh, uh, accumulated over the years steaming on board Navy ships up and down coastlines in and out of harbors and then across oceans and back again. Um, for those who ha didn't know it, I spent a number of years as a, a surface warfare officer in the Navy and then uh, later on as a chaplain and in between sandwiched some time to go to seminary and then mission field and, in uh, Africa and Australia and our youngest son was who's teaching now at the Air Force Academy and the pilot there is was born in Nairobi. <laughs> it's our little African, and, and our kids, many of them went, all of their schooling uh, just about was in Australia. Our eldest son graduated in Australia and then went on to Covenant College. But, but I say all these things because there are things <laughs> about your speaker this, this morning. He's a hodgepodge of experiences, and one of them has to do with steaming on the bridge of a ship and navigating using the Polarises for visual sighting on port and starboard bridge wings, and you'd take bearings, a line of bearing at certain targets that you knew from your chart should be there, you'd find them, and through that scope you'd take a, 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 as accurately as possible a bearing, you'd try to get them all at the same, as close to the same time as you could, synchronize them, and then you'd plot those bearings, <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> if everything worked right, they would come together at an exact 
point. Now, you almost never got a point because a ship moves and it bounces and, you, and your eye doesn't quite see and even one degree over a period of, over a distance of uh, several miles makes quite a few uh, uh, yards of difference in your position. So, so often what you get is a triangle <laughs> and, uh, and that triangle may be a large one if you were not very skilled. <laughs> Or it, if you're really skilled, you begin to center it down, you know, and you get a tighter and tighter triangle. Want that point. That's what you want. You almost never get it. But, but you're trying to be centered. Because that way you know you're where you are and where you should be. And you're able to do so because you have reference to something, listen, outside of yourself. We live in a culture that says, oh, everything comes from within. Center yourself by looking inside. And the Word of God tells us that there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Bible warns us against trying to trust in self. Trust in flesh, the Bible warns, will lead us to destruction. What we need is something reliable outside of ourselves. And the Word of God tells us it's God himself. Particularly as he reveals himself by his spirit through the scriptures pointing to his son. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, our one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in essence, one, in person, three, in an I-thou-he relationship from all eternity that is unlike anything else in all creation. By the way, that's a pretty good evidence for the truth of the Trinity, which is taught in Scripture, not the Word, but the but the teaching, the belief, it's taught there. Let me tell you why. I got a PhD in education, intercultural education, among other things. And, and, uh, um, and uh, that, in that program, one of the things we early learned is, and that teachers in, in uh, elementary school already know, is that we tend to learn by pegging what we know to something we already know. Uh, something new. Something new goes like on a coat hook of what we've already learned, see. That way we can, we can keep it somehow. And then something more onto that we build that way. Our experiences or something else that we've seen or heard. Here's the thing. There is no analogy to the Trinity in all of creation. God says he's holy. Holy means he's distinct and he's different. And one of the differences is nothing else in all creation is one and yet three persons. Yet one God. One God. One in his being. One in his essence. You don't have part of God with the spirit. You don't have part of God with the Son. You don't have part of God with the Father. It's not that God acts sometimes like he's the Father, and then later in some other occasion he acts like he's the Son, and then later on he acts like he's the Holy Spirit. No, he is 
God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from eternity past to eternity future. Changeless, immutable, and that gives us hope. Because so is his love to us. As his love as Father for his Son in covenantal communion, so enmeshed in the midst, if you will, between the hug from father to son and son to father. We're caught up between them. And it's a group hug, a family hug, because God has placed us into the family, his family, the family of God, a covenant love that will not let us go. Oh, friend, being centered is important. It's all important in our lives. In the text before us, we're going to take a step further from what we looked at last Sunday when we uh, considered some verses from Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 and his call for unity. Not a unity of essence, only the Trinity has that, but a unity of purpose, which the Trinity also has but gives to us. Those are called the uh, communicable attributes of God for those who are interested in theological, technical terms. But the point is that God made us to mirror him as an image, as his likeness. And in certain ways we can and do as his people, as his children, mirror him. And so we want to move from the question of unity to how do we express that unity in practical ways. And this morning's text teaches us that God calls his people to devotion to him through selfless service to others in the community of faith. Well, let me say that again, because that's the sermon in a sentence. God calls his people to devotion to him through selfless service to others in the community of faith. Now, I want us to Consider why and how this is so. First of all, notice that the believer's model is our Lord himself. Paul says in verse 3, he says, even Christ. First thing he does is he points to the Lord Jesus. The author of Hebrews says, consider him. He says, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the Most High. Consider Jesus, even, says Paul, Jesus Christ. What is it about Christ that in this particular passage is especially held forth? Well, there are many things. Paul here points out two, at least. One, that Jesus lived not for himself, but unselfishly. Verse 3, he did not please himself. Um, now, we need to understand uh, what this means. It doesn't mean that we simply live a philanthropic life. It means uh, that our lives are really transformed because the Spirit of God has changed us by engrafting us into Christ and put a new dynamic. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But it means now that we just don't do as we please. Living for our own convenience or comfort or, or uh, our own prestige or, or, or satisfaction. But now we're living for a reason that's bigger, larger than ourselves. 
And that larger reason is the one who gave himself for us. How can we show him we love him? How can we wash our master's feet? Look around you. Look around you. The Bible says we are one with him and therefore one with one another. And Paul brings out that point in greater detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 as he begins to go on and speak about the Lord's table, which is predicated upon a prior covenantal union of believers with their Lord and therefore with one another. That's why it's so serious to come to the table of the Lord with an unconfessed, unresolved separation between ourselves and others in the body of Christ that we have not brought to the Lord and dealt with best we can and brought to the person that we've offended or who's offended us insofar as we are able. It's a serious thing. Living unselfishly. There's a story, and it's repeated in a number of different sources, so I expect it's true. It probably came from... Uh, from Teddy Roosevelt's children, however, that when President Theodore Roosevelt uh, um, was, uh, uh, had his children were just a bit younger than they were when he reached the White House, that at one point he was, of course, he was a man of passion. And at one point he was very irritated with his uh, son, Kermit. And uh, he spoke roughly to him and then was so taken with his anger, he began to take young Kermit who was only perhaps eight or nine, by the shoulders and shake him. Shake him roughly. And his little daughter, his fourth child, Ethel, only four or five years old, put her hand on her father's arm and she said, shake me, father, shake me. She was concerned for her brother. Her father stopped, didn't shake her learn something. See, a four or five-year-old can show us something of the sacrificial heart and love for others that Jesus Christ has and that he wants us to emulate. Oh, don't you understand that his name is Emmanuel, God, right here with us and for us. And I've said it before, I'll say it again. When he came for his baptism at the beginning of his public ministry and John was, the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan and Jesus comes and John says, are you coming to me to be baptized? I should be baptized by you. What do you mean? What did baptism mean? Baptism meant... Two things, judgment and cleansing. Look at the Old Testament. Uh, ceremonies of purification, whether it's circumcision or whether it's pure, the ceremonial washings, and there were a number of them in the Old Testament. They all had to do with purification and judgment, judgment and purification. And the water said judgment. I acknowledge, God, that you are holy and righteous and and just, and that I have broken your covenantal commandments, and I stand justly beneath the judgment 
of your holy sentence. And I plead mercy. I have nothing. I acknowledge, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior beyond myself. And it also signified cleansing and a new beginning, but only on the basis of sacrifice. And so John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, Behold what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does Jesus say to John? He says, Suffer it to be so for now. For so it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. He's saying, John, John, I know it doesn't make sense to you yet. I am the Lamb of God, yes, but I must be baptized. Why? What sin have you to confess, to acknowledge that you're under God's judgment? Why? Ah, uh, It's for the reason that Peter understood when he wrote in his first epistle that the judgment of the flood, again the water, the baptism of the world, judgment of the world that was, which carried away all but eight souls safely enclosed in the ark. And Peter says, the ark was Christ. Pictures Christ. Symbolizes Christ. Christ went through the judgment for us, and in him we are preserved and are safe. Only in him. So when Jesus is baptized, he's saying, Father, you're right. You're just when you pronounce judgment on your people. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Paul would later write to the Romans. Jesus was acknowledging that, and then he was doing, in effect, this. Father, your people, your covenant people, have sinned against you and stand under your just judgment. Heavenly Father, I'm with them. As it were, put his, shoulder, his arm around their shoulder, identifying with us as his people and saying, Heavenly Father, let the judgment, the just sentence of your wrath and fury against sin, against your holy law, commandments. Let that just sentence fall upon me in their stead. See, that's the gospel. That God gives us a Savior from outside of ourselves to do that which we could not do simply by looking within and trying self-improvement. Don't ever confuse biblical sanctification with self-improvement, my friends. Sanctification is once we come to Christ to trust in him, we're in, uh, embraced by the love of Christ, by the Holy Spirit. Once that's happened, that spiritual baptism that Peter talks about, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, that's the true baptism, what the water stands for. The water is just a, an emblem, a symbol, points to it. Just as the Lord's table is, is, is real in the bread and wine, but it, it isn't Jesus, but it points to him, and his presence is real in the giving and receiving of bread and wine. These are important signs of inward truth. So 
God takes us and he enfolds us into Christ. His spirit dwells in us and therefore his son is at work in our lives and our lives begin to bear fruit. And we want to be more like the one we love. We're drawn to him. We thirst for his word and when we don't, the Holy Spirit who dwells in us does not let us rest. He convicts us if we're truly a child of God. You see someone that lives in brazen sin and shrugs it off and has no concern at all and no compunction, no repentance at all. That's not a good sign that they were ever saved in the first place. But what we need to do is recognize that our sanctification is the outgrowth of the Spirit's work in our heart and life, conforming us as mirrors of the one who's come to save us. See, God made us in his image, in his likeness. There are certain ways in which we are to express a likeness to him. And notice one of them is this, that Jesus bore hardship and insult as he identified with God the Father. Verse 3, a citation from Psalm 69, verse 9, which also includes references to the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus. He says, the, the insults of those who insult you have fallen upon me. Now, at first glance, you read that and say, what has that got to do with bearing each other's burdens? I mean, this is the insults of people who hate God, and so they blaspheme God, and those are taken by Jesus on himself. Well, because, why? Because Jesus is identified with his Father. Hatred for him is hatred for the Father. Jesus said so. Friends, if we're like Jesus, we're going to experience it too. In uh, John chapter 15, uh, verses 20 and 21, we read these verses. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. And if we're united with Christ, then we cannot help but be united with one another, whether we want to recognize that or not. It's true. And if we're one with one another, that means it calls for us to show that, to express it in sacrificial ways. Our model is the Lord himself, but secondly, the believer's resource is God's word and spirit. Verse 4, we read, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. The word written is scripture. So that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, the things written, we might have hope. Earlier already in verse 17 and later again uh, in this chapter, so twice in the immediate context, the Apostle Paul speaks of the work of the Holy Spirit. We need to understand that the whole of the scriptures is the work, the outbreathing. Of the, of the Holy Spirit. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, uh, the Apostle Paul writes, all Scripture, or the whole of Scripture, is given by 
inspiration of God. Actually, it means breathing out from God and is profitable for uh, doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. It's the work of the Spirit through the Word. And the Spirit provides then the dynamic for the believer's life. Verse 6, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The work of the Spirit is, among other things, to produce unity in the body. And where there are fractures, that means that in some way or another, his people are not in step with the working of his Spirit. So, so the uh, work of the Spirit also, through the Spirit, it, uh, through the Scriptures, is that the Scriptures then can give us and do give us confident hope, verse 4, that through the endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have what? Hope. Hope. Well, I hope it doesn't rain. Well, I hope it's a girl. Uh, You know, talking about a coming child's birth. Well, you know, uh, uh, I hope I get a good grade on the exam. I I hope dessert tonight will be a pie cherry pie or something. Hope, hope, hope. We use hope in so many different ways. That's all right, but that's not the way the Bible uses hope. The Bible uses hope as a confidence, something that we don't yet have, but, but it is assured in the promise of God, and we look forward to it. It's really there. We're going to have it. God said so. Don't yet, but we know it's coming. And so... Verse 13 of this context of this chapter, Paul talks about the God of hope. The God of hope. I mean, well, we have a God for faith, and we have a God for love, and we have a God for hope. No, 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 no. The one God who gives each of these things is also the God of each of them. He is the God of hope. Confidence. If I'm driving an area I haven't been through before and the streets are not familiar to me, I really like having driving directions from MapQuest or uh, somebody that I really trust who knows the area has written them down for me uh, so my memory doesn't play tricks on me. As I get older, that happens more often. Or a GPS, you know, something to tell me, you know, turn right. Okay, I'll turn right. So It gives us greater confidence that we shall arrive at our intended destination. But, you know, we still may be in error. They can still lead us astray. I've had my GPS take me a long way off. There was a a lady that hit the news that drove from Italy to Belgium following her GPS. (laughs) She was trying to go 10 miles away. You'd think she'd have stopped and asked direction, but off she went all the way to Belgium from Italy. I'm thinking, whoa, (laughs) lights are on. Is anyone home? Um, These things can let us down. But God's word does not ever let us down. We can have complete confidence in the one who cannot lie. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 6, verses uh, 18 and 19. 
God did this so that by two unchangeable things, that is, his word and his vow, his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope, the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Now, I've said before that the uh, Allah of the Quran is an Allah who can change his mind and does. He can rescind his promises and does. He may say something and tomorrow say something else. It's called the doctrine of abrogation. His sheer will at any one moment is all that determines things. The Bible has a word for uh, a, a supernatural being who wants to act by whatever he wants to do at any particular moment without regard to any uh, kind of inward restraint. And that word is, that person is not God. It is not God. It is the adversary of God and of his people. Because, you see, the God of the Bible is El Chesed, a God of covenant faithfulness. I am Yahweh, he says, the great I am, the deliverer. I change not. Therefore, you, children of Israel, you believers in the covenant God by Christ's work that's made the two one, Jew and Gentile, you, therefore, are not consumed. Though the Christian life is often one that is more characterized by suffering than of triumph, often is, you know, Paul writes the Philippians, for to you it is granted not only to um, believe in Christ, but also to suffer for his name. And Paul could also write to Timothy and say, yes, everyone who would live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's not a health and wealth, a prosperity doctrine offer here. It's not what I'm preaching. It's not what the Bible truly gives. Come to Jesus and you'll be greatly successful. You have all the business, the money, and... and uh, uh, success in politics or sports or what. No, no, no. God says, follow me. Deny yourself. Die to yourself. And I will conform you to my holy self. His spirit will do that. You see, we have a hope that is certain and our anchor is none other than Christ himself. The believer's model is our Lord himself, his resource is God's word and spirit. Finally, the believer's goal is unity to the glory of God. Verse 6. So that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, our life is one of denial of self, not just self-denial. We're not, verse 1, to please ourselves. But there's a difference between denial of self and self-denial. Do you know that? Um, sometimes we use them loosely and, and may convey or mean to convey the same thing, but they're really different. Um, self-denial is denying ourselves things. I'll give up desserts this week. That's self-denial. Um, I'll give up time on the computer. That's maybe, especially for a teenager, perhaps self-denial. Disciplines are self-denial, or they may be. And that can lead to a life of um, 
asceticism, which is basically trying to press by sheer dint of willpower ourselves into a mold that we would like it to be. That's not denial of self. Denial of self is a very different thing. It's taking ourself off the throne of our heart, of our life, and saying, Lord Jesus, you won't be Savior unless you're also Lord, and that's true in Scripture. You don't have halfway salvation. Some try to teach that. I'm afraid it's not right scripturally. If he's Savior, he must be Lord. If he's not Lord, I question whether he's truly your savior. But the implications, the awareness of the implications of Christ's lordship may come by stages. We may grow in our awareness of what that means, and that's part of maturing as believers, just as children mature into adults. Denying ourselves means saying, Lord Jesus, what will honor you with the way I use my car this week? How I use my home? my time, my relationships, my finances, my energy, even my pleasures. It's not wrong to have pleasures. There are so many places I'd love to preach a series on pleasure from the Bible and see how it's different from the world's notion of pleasure, but it's also different from those who would try to say, God, you know, got to absolutely avoid anything you enjoy. That's not true, not biblical at all. But what we need to do is to understand that everything we have is God's. Belongs to the Lord Jesus. He's in our life, on the throne of our heart, and what we want to do, and that includes how we treat each other. See, our intention is not, uh, is, is actually edification within the community of faith. Look at verse 2. Each of us should please his neighbor, what, flatter him? That's laying a web, a, a net for his feet, a snare. Don't flatter someone. Make them feel good. That's not what it means. It says, each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. That's edification. And by the way, Paul doesn't say each person should do this. He doesn't say each person. He says each of us. He's writing to the Romans from a distance, and he's never yet been to Rome. And he says, us. What's he implying? That there's a community among those who believe. And it stretches across the miles and it includes people we haven't even met yet. But they've met Jesus. And so have we. So we are part, one with another. And our purpose as believers requires the endurance that only God can provide. Verse 4, Paul speaks of that we, through endurance might have hope. Verse 5, the God who gives endurance. It's important to persevere, but you can't persevere just by dint of willpower. God has to provide the ability, the strength, the enablement, the motivation from within, and he does it by his indwelling spirit, Christ in us, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul calls it a mystery. That means the world can't understand it. It's only known because God reveals it. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that brings us to the final thought. The believer's desire, therefore, 
is to encourage others. Now the word encouragement is used twice here in just verses 4 and 5 alone. And uh, the term there, parakalaseos, is a term that is very close to the root word of what? Paraclete. Some of you have heard that term. It's a term that is often brought right over into the English. A word that, mean, that is used by Jesus in the upper room discourse to his disciples the night he's betrayed to refer to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And it's translated uh, the comforter in the King James. It's translated as the advocate by others. The counselor, the helper, the strengthener, one who comes alongside and bears you up next to you and even carries you when you've fallen. That's what we're to do for one another. The story is told of a great Greek general. I heard it long ago, and if memory serves, his name was Amentus. Um, but this general found himself defending his friend in a public trial. Now, Amentus had fought a great battle. Through great courage, he had he defeated overwhelming uh, numbers of the enemy that would have sacked the city and destroyed it, probably carried off all the inhabitants as slaves. In the course of that battle, in which he had fought so valiantly, he lost his right forearm. It was gone. All he had now was a stump. He was maimed. General Stumpy, the troops probably called him. Now Amentus found himself defending his friend in a public trial in which his friend had been accused of some uh, particular uh, infringement or another. Amentus came to the center after the prosecutor had made their case in great eloquent speeches as was the day. And it's a great amphitheater and the citizens of the town are all seated around, they would be the jury. And then Amentus comes in defense and does not give an eloquent soliloquy. He simply raises his stump in the air. That's all. And puts his other arm around the shoulder of his friend. And by acclamation, his friend was acquitted. You see, that's a little bit of the picture of what happens for us. The Spirit of God grafts us into Christ and pleads Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf before God the Father. And such is the paradigm, albeit in a more finite and limited way, that we are to mirror toward one another in the body of Christ. Being patient, loving, forgiving one another, the scripture says. Well, our model is the Lord Jesus. Our resource is God's word and spirit. And our goal is unity to the glory of God. But it's all because God has called us, Christ community, to devotion to him, how shown in part through selfless service to others in the community of faith. May the Lord Jesus, by his Spirit, give us the motivation and the Spirit's power to reflect him in our relationship 
one with another. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, I would ask that if there's some here today that have never surrendered their hearts thrown to Jesus, that they would do that now, acknowledging him alone as Savior and Lord, that they cannot do anything to add to what he's done or to contribute to it, but as beggars with open hands come to receive mercy unearned from your throne because of him. And I would pray that those of us who know you, Lord, may be reminded of these truths and bonded together with a love that that causes us to know the peace and joy of you, our Heavenly Father. We pray this, O Lord, that God may be exalted in our midst and those around us may say, Behold, how they love one another. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.